This is Things Police See, first-hand accounts, with your host, Steve Gould. Welcome to the podcast that interviews active and retired police officers about their most intense, bizarre, and sometimes humorous moments on the job. I'm Steve Gould, ladies and gentlemen. How are you doing? How is everything going with you? Thank you for being here. Thank you for finding the podcast. If you're a repeat listener or return listener, I appreciate you. Thank you for coming back. This is the show where I would say the best show out there that highlights war stories from law enforcement, from the men and women of law enforcement. Uh, no hold barred, no holds barred. Yeah, um, just unedited. Exactly how they experience them, so you can get a taste of what it's actually like. What what these people actually have to deal with. Uh, on the job and gain a better appreciation for what they do. That's the whole point of the show. Thank you for all the rating and reviewing. Um, thank you for the Patreon subscribers. We truly appreciate that. If you really love the show, you can't get enough and you really want to show me some love, Patreon's a place to do that. You can do that right in the show notes. Click on it. A couple of different options there to pick from, uh, but, but rest assured the show will remain free. If you don't have the money or it's not in the budget, I totally get it. There's so many things that are not in my budget. Uh, that I just want to do, but I can't. So don't worry about that. But uh, rating and re- reviewing five star reviews are always a, a good way. Or or send me a message. I love getting message from you guys. I get tons. Um, if I don't respond right away, that's just because uh, in today's day and age, there is a lot of ways to get messages. So there's um, there's Instagram Messenger, and then my personal in- Instagram Messenger thing and then Facebook and then Facebook business suite because of the business page for the show emails two different emails uh and then sometimes my main email is like real real aggressive with filtering out junk mail so I actually routinely go through that and find your messages so just know I'm not ignoring you I just need to find how you chose to get a hold of me but I would say steve at com is definitely the best way to do that so if you have a message or encouragement or even um, constructive criticism uh, is welcome, but straight up hate mail, please don't do that because that affects my ego too greatly. So today's show is going to be a great one. We had, uh, we've tried it twice. We had some technical difficulties, which happens sometimes, but this time uh, I'm relatively confident that we're good to go. I am a little bit, uh, I'm a little bit, I feel like a wet rat or a wet dog. I had a call yesterday that involved removing somebody from a house by court order and which we have to do sometimes and is never uh, that much fun because usually when you go to get somebody, they uh, have stuff in the house and they want to bring all of the stuff and you're like, no, just grab a few things. Then you can come back, get the order amended to, to bring the appropriate moving stuff or whatever. So anyways, this whole thing's going on. And there is a huge storm coming through where I work, like lightning storm, trees are going down, the radio is going off with roads being blocked all around the county. Um, it's just a, it was a total nightmare, torrential, torrential downpour, downpour. One of those downpours when like your wipers can't go fast enough, you just can't see. Also, obviously, super humid out. It was um, super humid, so everything's fogging. I get there and it just involved me being outside a lot while trying to manage this thing in a complete downpour. And if you're a cop, you know the struggle I'm talking about. If you're not, we carry a bunch of stuff on us and it's really not uh, designed to get soaking wet. Like this was so bad that afterwards I had to take all the stuff out of my pouches and like, you know, like water is pouring out of my taser, the handcuffs are filled, my tourniquet pouch is filled with water. It was just, it was, it was a night. And then that was the beginning of my shift. So I spent the whole shift just soaked down to my boots and my underpants. So uh, I feel weird and uh, off <laughs> a little bit. So thankfully, we have a hell of a guest on with a really cool career. I'm so excited to have him. 18 years on the job. He's working uh, Central North Dakota. He's done patrol, FTO, street crimes unit, and he's currently on the Marshals Task Force, which is really cool. I want to ask him some questions about that. So without further ado, let me bring on Tommy G. I like that. Tommy G. What's going on, man? We'll take it. Absolutely. Just happy to be here. Happy it's working today. 
Dude, yeah, me too. That was so weird last time. What happened was every time we got five minutes in, yeah. Tom would black like out. Right at five minutes, just gone. Yeah, yeah. It was almost like a setting or something. But then we tried different phones. So anyways, we're good now. We've been on for longer than five minutes. And it's been 10 minutes now. <laughs> it's so. been 10 minutes, baby. Yeah, <laughs> I like it. Um, Tom, Central North Dakota. Born and raised there? Yep. Really? That's awesome, man. That just seems like one of those states to me that's just like, when you're from the Northeast where everything's so built up and there's not a lot of open space and it's kind of confining feeling, um, those Western states to me are like are like real Americana, like open plains, yeah. stuff like that. So cool. My wife is from the West Coast um, in Washington and she loves the, the trees and the mountains and stuff. And every time we're on the interstate going somewhere, I'm like, look at this. You can see every horizon, north, south, east, west. You can see to the horizon. Yeah. I love that. I've said that before, but there is something about seeing a long way that like it's very peaceful or something. Like when we lived in the in Southern California and then we moved to the high desert and a bunch of times I visited my parents when they were in Arizona. Um there just is something really that really draws me to it. I really like living in an area like that. Yeah, I think the mountains and the forests are beautiful, but I prefer being able to see forever and see the, you know, see the summer storms rolling in and yeah. We like, you know, it's nice to see that. So just a wall of trees. Absolutely, man. And that's what and you guys out there too are um were early adopters of like patrol rifles. I think because of that, um like the the states like Texas and all the states that have like very long, long, big, wide open areas. I used to teach yeah. at our Citizens Police Academy and it was kind of when it was probably over 10 years ago now when I started doing that. And people always kind of want an explanation for why the AR-15, because it looks so aggressive, you know, it's just a mm-hmm. semi-automatic rifle, but it looks like a weapon of, you know, everybody sees it in war movies. And that was right. one of my examples was the Western states, these guys, I'm like, this isn't new. Those guys have had these weapons for a long time out of necessity because a 12 gauge with buckshot isn't going to do you any good if you're yeah. engaging somebody a hundred yards out. Yeah. Like the, you know, the deputies and the troopers are sometimes going up these quarter mile long driveways and everybody, everybody out here has a scoped hunting rifle. That, yeah. So that's a sketchy. Yeah. I would feel like everybody's a sovereign citizen out there because they have these huge <laughs> ranches like you're on my property, boy. Right. <laughs> Um, Tom, so the Marshall's task force, I got a bunch of questions to ask you, but so you're, uh, like a city police officer and you're right. assigned to the task force also as a collateral duty. Right. Yep. Um, about 90% of what I do is for the task force. Oh, okay. That's um, great. And, and we, we adopt state warrants, you know, they'll help you with so that. They, they have to meet a certain criteria, you know, violent crime or high level drug offense. It can't just, you know, it can't be possession of drugs or something like that. But we work mostly, mostly state level warrants. And then most of the federal warrants we work are just like the federal probation violations that we've got to go grab these people and stuff. So, okay. So with the the state warrants are usually the, the worst ones. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. Um, for my, for my jurisdiction anyway. Gotcha. With the marshals, they, they do a lot. I mean, they like run federal courts and do security and even like, our judges and stuff but there there's not there's not a huge amount of like marshals that do the field work like that right that i know right yeah i think uh, i think most people don't realize that being a, a marshal is a lot of just driving people back and forth from local jails and taking them to federal court hearings and taking them back and transporting to another jail out of state that actually has room for marshals inmates and it's mostly yeah. doing that yeah, it seems like almost like a giant sheriff's department, like because they do a lot yeah. of the jail stuff, you know. But it, when you yeah, see was, see movies, they're always like the the badasses, the marshals. Yeah, guys. yeah. No, I always joke that I have one of the best jobs in the marshal service. I don't even work for them. So yeah, yeah. I hear that a lot from guys that are on task force, like say, like with the like a anti terrorism task force or like an ATF task force. Like the guys that are local guys that are on the team, that's like the best gig. Yeah. That's yep, really cool. Exactly. Especially when they can help you out with like, like you said, state warrants and stuff like that. Right. Um, that's cool. Yeah. We had Mark Cameron on the show. It's a Royal. We, I always say we, it's just me. <laughs> I had Mark Cameron on the show. Um, and he was us marshal and he's also took over obviously writing for, um, uh, Tom Clancy, but he has some stories that are these federal guys. A lot of times are like, 
we I always imagine with all these resources, but a lot of times they, they, they don't have that. Like if they're doing an investigation or they're looking for somebody, it's it's pretty hairy. Yeah, I would assume so. I, yeah, I, I did listen to that that interview. That was a good one. Yeah, he's he's a cool dude. Um, so with the marshals, are you're, you're doing ninety percent with them. So are you coming into work like playing clothes, and you can pretty much just kind of let a lieutenant or something know what you're doing? Yeah, a couple times a week, my partner and I we have to do bailiff duties for municipal court, and that's you know it's the price we got to pay to have fun the rest of the time. Right. So that's uniformed. And then we see, we see our municipal prisoners in the jail while the judge does the zoom hearings. And other than that, we're just playing clothes, rolling around in our, in our minivan and doing whatever. That's great. So what percentage of, um, federal stuff are you doing versus state? As far as warrants? Yeah. Uh, I would say 90% state. Oh, wow. All right. So you're doing a fair amount of stuff. That's cool. And these guys, marshals, are they usually, um, we used to have a, a state, or we still do, but I haven't used them in a long time, but a state fugitive task force. And I swear, these guys would show up in the back parking lot and they had like no necks. They were just huge. <laughs> and they would, they would put, you know, wear the vest on the outside, like not even a carrier, just like a normal vest. And they were just, oh. they were just, when they went to somebody's house for someone that we were looking for, um, they went in they looked everywhere, even ducting mm-hmm. that didn't look like could fit a human. They were looking up there. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And most of the time, 90% of the time we'll, we just do surveillance and wait and try to grab open air. Gotcha. It's just a lot less complicated when they're just outside. But you know, these guys aren't out walking their dog very often. So sometimes you got to wait a while. Yeah. Yeah. I got you. So the, the marshals are mainly doing warrants. They're not, or are they doing investigations too? Um, I think they're starting to do a few more investigations, um, but they're they're generally just in charge of apprehension. Gotcha. Like bounty hunters kind of. Basically. Not really, but like what people think of bounty hunters are grabbing the bad right. guys. That's cool, man. So, Tom, can you take us back to uh, a young officer, Tom G, and tell us about the first call you had um, – your first uh, hot call, let's say. This was probably one of the harder questions because it was, you know, it's a long time ago, but, and it's not even a hot call, but it was me at 22, well, hot not to knowing you. anything yeah, yeah. about anything. Well, it was, I was with my FTO on, I think it was the first day I was in the squad with him. I'm in the passenger seat and I'm, I'm just taking it all in, like trying to get comfortable in my uniform and just like not try not to touch any buttons in the car that I don't know what they do. And, right. and we're, we're chatting and, just we're heading south over a bridge and this car comes flying up northbound. I don't even really notice it. And my FTO just looks at it, hits the radar button, locks it in, spins around and stops him. And he, he was going, I don't know, I think it was like 60 or 70 in a 35 zone, just spins around, stops some normal traffic stop. And I was, it blew my mind. I was like, there's no way, there's no way I'm going to be able to do this. <laughs> like he was just so nonchalant about seeing the guy hitting the radar, locking it in, turning around, writing him a ticket. I'm like, there's just no, there's absolutely no way I can do this. <laughs> so it was something as minor as that on my first day, I was like, oh shit, there's no, there, I can't do this. <laughs> yeah. You, well, you're truly drinking from a fire hose when you get into FTO and yeah. And that was back in the day, you know, I didn't have any like in-house training beforehand or anything. So like I was second day as a cop, I was like, I have no idea what's going on. <laughs> yeah. You feel like I'm, I'm never going to be where this guy's at with how quickly he's picking. Yeah. It's like second nature to him. Yeah. And then, uh, the same, same FTO, he was a great guy, but, uh, when he finally let me drive the car, it was our first, it was our first call that we needed to actually get to. And it was just a bar fight. It was no big deal, but he's like, he looks at me, he's like, don't drive like a pussy. So, <laughs> so, <laughs> so we get, we get to the parking lot and the car is, the brakes are just smoking. And he looks at me, he's like, not that fast. <laughs> so, <laughs> that, I think that's good. I think if you can do that to your FTO, that's, that's, he probably respected you for that. Well, you know, 10 years later, uh, fight in progress call, you just drive as slow as you can with the, with the siren on. Hope everybody's gone when you get there. <laughs> right, so they hear you coming. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome, man. Yeah. That, um, when you're new, like there, I remember I, when I was brand new, I worked with the guy that we had a highway that went through town and he could, um, car going the opposite way. He would just grab the plate and put it in like every, he, he just 
could yeah. just absorb the numbers. And I'm one of those people, like if I'm running, if I, if I want to sit on the side of the road and run plates, I'll, I'll have like a little pair of binoculars because my brain just doesn't, I'm a lot better at it now, but my brain doesn't, I can't pick them up as quick because there's all these different letters and number combinations, obviously in a license plate. And if the car is going fast, I don't have the kind of mind where I can just like, I, mean, I probably need glasses, but can pick it up. <laughs> but that was, that was intimidating to me. Someone who's able to like, just like look around and grab license plates as they're passing by and run one or two at a time. I was like, I'm never going to be able to do that. And I still can't. My partner is the same way. He's, he's rain man with that. A week later, he'll be like, we ran that plate last week. That was to a so-and-so. I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I know exactly what you mean. I, I have been on meetups with cops before chatting and a car will go by and be like, Oh, I ran that last week. I think he, I think he was uh, about to expire. And I'm like, Dude, I can't remember yeah. what I ran yesterday. Yeah, exactly. It's good to have those people around because <laughs> I, I don't know what they're talking about, but I trust them. <laughs> yeah, real bird dogs, you know. Yeah. All right, Tom, can you tell us about um, the most bizarre call that you dealt with? I have a couple written down. Um, I don't know. This could take a while. but no, that's fine, brother. Um, We're we, here for This it. was... God, I don't remember how long ago this was, but it was it was when I worked in a smaller town west of here, um, kind of during the meth meth lab epidemic, toward the tail end of it. But um, we had an oil boom in that town where you know a ton of people moved in and kind of doubled the town's population, and so we had some meth labs pop up here and there. And one day it's just a slow slow. I think it was a weekday afternoon. And nothing was going on. Also, we got a, some calls from this apartment complex that there had been an explosion in the building. So we get there, and we're all thinking meth lab exploded or whatever. And these the lower level windows on one apartment on the corner they were all popped out of their frames. They weren't shattered, but they were all popped out of the frames on oh, wow. on the corner. So we're like, well, obviously that's the place. And uh, so we set up a perimeter and and uh, start doing our thing. The fire department shows up and. Uh, they go in to, the, to check for fire or whatever, and they come out and they start doing their decon. And, and one of them comes up to me. He's like, dude, it's real fucked up in there, man. I'm like, what's up? And he's like, well, it looks like the epicenter of the blast was in the bathroom. But in one of the bedrooms, there's a, a video camera on a tripod and there's a mannequin in a dress laying on the bed. What? <laughs> like, that is weird. Yeah. And it's like nobody else is in there. We're like, okay, well, obviously, whoever exploded ran away. And uh, so we're, we're taking care of business on scene, and one of the perimeter officers radios that uh, she's got the suspect that just rolled up to her, her position and, and um, needed help. And so turns out uh, this guy fled the scene because he was scared of being arrested for the meth lab, but uh, he had nowhere to go, so he decided just to come back and face the music, and he's – he's got makeup just flash fried to his face and his, his like lacy dress. You can see like the burn marks through the lace onto his chest. And what had happened was he told us that his roommate cooks meth using the two liter bottle shake and bake method. Oh, the one. And pot. Yeah. So he goes, his roommate always goes home for the weekend, but he always cleans up the little meth labs before he goes. But this weekend his roommate forgot to. So after his roommate left, this guy's like, I'm going to shake the rest of the meth out of this or whatever. He doesn't know what he's doing. But he said every time he does meth, he gets these sexy feelings, and he was going to make a video with that mannequin. Oh, my <laughs> so, gosh. So this poor guy not only sexy blows himself feelings. up, he blows his apartment up. Then he has to come back to the police and ask for help and then go to jail with makeup and a dress burned to him. Oh, my gosh. So many questions. Yeah. felt bad for that guy. Yeah, that, that, that's really sad. It's like, dude, <laughs> doing math. Still going to remember him a decade later, though. I wonder. I sometimes wonder what he's up to. <laughs> Look him up, hey man. How you doing? Things, things going better in your life? If he's, still, if he's still alive, has the makeup burned to his face. <laughs> that's crazy. So he had makeup on, and I, I was thinking of like one of those movies where I, they hold the makeup machine to their face and it shoots it on. <laughs> so, I think he. Uh, I think he wanted to get fully prepared before you cooked the last of the meth and. Obviously, so you get busy with that mannequin. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah, he's got his priorities. Um, yeah, that's crazy, man. I, I don't. That's crazy that it the pressure was so high from the explosion that it popped the windows out, 
and somehow he his head wasn't hamburger. Yeah, it was just like just they were just popped a little bit out, a couple inches out of their frames, and I and don't it, know. It blew up right <laughs> was, right in his face. Yeah, I wasn't I wasn't expecting the suspect to come back to us and then be wearing a dress and have makeup burned to his face. That is so weird, man. Sometimes in this job, you just—it's like you're in a movie. You're like, this is unreal. Yeah, those those were the days when we had a, a bunch of meth going around. Now it's all opiates, and nobody does crazy shit like that. Yeah, everybody's like sleepy. <laughs> yeah, um, no zombies running around anymore like that. Yeah, dude, that's crazy. Um, well, I mean, pretty nice house if it's sealed that tight. Pretty, uh, pretty um, efficient. <laughs> it, was an, it was an average apartment building, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's wild, man. Um, you got a second one for us? Yeah. Um, this is a small town again, and typically we don't have vehicle thefts in broad daylight, but we got a call from this car wash where, you know, you, you leave your car at the entrance, an employee grabs it and drives it through, and they hand wash it and all this stuff. And this guy calls, and he's like, I think somebody just stole a car from here because this guy came running out of the car wash and tried my door handle. Then he couldn't get in my car. He jumped in another car and took off. So we're like, okay. So we start looking for it. Can't find it. In like 10, 15 minutes, we kind of drive around, can't find it, chalk it up, and we'll, we'll keep looking for it. And about 45 minutes later, we get a call from a homeowner. He's like, I'm supposed to be home alone, but I think there's somebody in my basement, and my whole house smells like gasoline. So we're like, well, well, you know, obviously these are connected. So we go over there and start ordering this dude out of the basement. And this poor bastard comes out of the basement. He just got skin falling off of him, just head to toe burned up. And he stinks like gasoline. So we get the ambulance crew over there and they start doing their medical. And he's obviously under the influence of meth. And I'm asking him what the hell's going on. And he tells me that he was at the mall and the SWAT team in hazmat suits and canines was chasing him. So he had to run across the interstate to escape them. And he, he hid in the, the garden shed behind this gas station. And he knows that the only way to avoid detection by a canine is to pour gasoline on his on his uh, crotch to cover the scent. Oh, my god! So he's, he's sitting in this confined space having poured gasoline on himself to cover his scent. And he's so stressed out from the SWAT team in hazmat suits and canines that he decides he needs a cigarette. So immediate human torch (laughs) and we went back and i got the video from the gas from the gas station and this guy runs through the back of the car wash fully engulfed in flames and he's the luckiest human being in the world that the car wash was running at that moment he runs through the car wash gets put out and then steals the car on the outside and takes off what the hell small town huh yeah Man, Just random stuff. That's bizarre, dude. So he said guys were chasing him in hazmat suits. Was that true? No. Oh, no. okay. I thought maybe like he <laughs> no. ran out of a meth lab and they they were about to raid or something. <laughs> no, this was just meth at work. So yeah, meth. Um, they always say coke's a hell of a drug, but I would say meth is a hell of a drug. Yeah, when you get really into it, they you know start seeing hazmat suit SWAT teams. Yeah, yeah. I, I never understand. I mean, I guess we can't understand it because we're not addicted to meth, but um, I don't even understand, like, why you would do it the first time. Like, hey, it's kind of like bath salts. Yeah. It's like, hey, I, may, I'm, I might cut my own, own nose off and eat it. That, this seems like yeah. a, I, mean, I understand heroin. I understand. Absolutely. I understand pot. I understand all those things. I Because I, I remember I, I broke my leg in high school football, and they gave me uh, opiate, opiates to for the pain. And, um, and they gave me Demerol in the hospital and that truly makes you feel like just like just chilled out. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. I was having like, you know, kind of a soft spot in my heart for, for opiate addicts. Cause I, I know that a lot of them start out with prescription, you know, legitimate prescriptions and, but like nobody ever prescribed anybody meth. So yeah, yeah. That's not a, it's not on the, maybe in Mexico, that's a a drug you can get at the (laughs) drugstore, but. Damn, man. Yeah, I went to a training on clandestine labs, and we don't really have many in my area at all. But um, right after the training, a neighboring agency chased a guy for um, revoked uh, or suspended license, and he ran into his into the top of a barn with a makeshift uh, meth lab in it, and that was kind of like, I just had the class, and there's all these, and he was also making um, GHB, 
I think. So there's all these little jars of stuff with tinfoil over them. And they're all labeled. And I was like, it smelled weird. I'm like, I'm just going to back out and call the. Yeah, that's sketchy. Yeah, yeah. I, I just, that, cause you know, when you take a class on it, they're like, they just tell you about the one, the guy that's shaking the one pot and the cop walks up and he has it between his legs and it <laughs> explodes, you know, like, man, I, I just, I don't understand it at all. But, um, like I said, I get the opiate stuff. Like, you know, like we were saying, it's, it takes, you know, it, it takes your, it, it, if you have a terrible life or, or you want, you want to not think or whatever, I get right. it. But that stuff is, yeah, uh, if you, if you get, if you get a prescription of that and you don't have anything else really going on, I could easily see you getting addicted to that. Yeah. Yeah. I had mine when I was a kid. So I, I was like 16. Um, but what it would, I only took it for a little in the hospital. It was good because the pain was really bad. When you first stand at a full leg cast, and when you first stand up with a full leg cast right after the injury, um, my, my break was mid shin fibia tibia. You could even the weight of the cast, you could feel it like separate the stickiness of the bone that's trying to heal. It was horrible feeling. So <laughs> it kind of took that away, which was cool. Cause then you could get up and take a leak without like peeing in a bedpan or something. But then I, I had it in high school and I would take it. Um, I had times of the day that I had to take it. Now I think they take these things away from kids and the school nurse has to dole it out. But I just had them on me, so I would take one towards the end of the day, and um, I would always fall asleep and dream that I was falling, and then I would try <laughs> to straighten my broken leg, and that only happened like two times, and I was like, you know what, <laughs> I'm going to stick with like uh, ibuprofen because I can't, I can't do this. Yeah. So luckily, I didn't get addicted to it. But man, that's <laughs> it's so funny when people, small town cops, or or not larger agencies are you always are going to have to hear from people who have no, no knowledge of police work. They're going to say, what do you guys even do? Like, there's, mm-hmm. there's no crime around here. There is, there's crime everywhere. And the police see it all. Like they go to every yeah. single call. So where there might not be the frequency, there's also not the amount of people. So it's like, if you, right. if you work in a smaller place and you get one of those days where it's a couple big calls in one day, it's, busy as hell it, mm-hmm. it's hard to like at a small place if you get an arrest that can take you like two-thirds of the way through your shift just dealing with arrest transport booking calling the um bail commissioner and then if you have to bring him to the county or i don't know how you guys do it but like it can it can take your your whole day yeah yeah i mean once you get done logging your own evidence and writing the report and writing the affidavit and doing all that yeah you can you can be down for a while right dude i i really I really uh, look fondly on the old days. Like when I get, when I started law enforcement it was early two thousands and that the old days were kind of ending, but like there was still in the system, like, um, or on file, there was still like police reports and it was like, they were like four sentences. It was like really yeah. no information in there. Um, yep. it was really simple. The guy would get arraigned. And then in back then for us, we actually had court officers, police officers that would like prosecute the case. Like if you were the court officer, you would actually, oh, really? yeah, yeah. It was horrible. My, my dad told me he was a cop for 30 years and he said the court officer job was one of those jobs you, you get. And then you spend the next year trying to get out of, cause it's, I mean, you're going against attorneys and you're a cop. So it's not, you know, we deal right. with things in the moment. We uh, law on the street. We don't, we're not hitting the books. So, um, I don't know why I started talking about that, Tom, but, uh, the, I don't remember <laughs> those stories were, uh, were fantastic. Um, so let's move on here. Can you tell us about the most intense or terrifying call that you went on? Um, well, I've been in a couple of shootings, um, been present for a handful more where I didn't pull the trigger, but probably the most intense one was where I didn't shoot. Um, it was, it was our, it was our first apprehension that we did after my second shooting. And, um, this guy was wanted for a stabbing and we had him in a vehicle. It was a, just a little Chevy hatchback with all the rear windows tinted. And we knew he was in the back seat. Um, patrol helped us with a high risk stop in a, in a parking lot and it was fine. Everybody else was cooperative. Everybody else left the car, left the doors open, but uh dude was in the car in the back seat behind tint screaming, come get some, come get me. I got a gun, come get my gun and all this stuff. And this lasted for, you know, 
five, 10 minutes and we're yelling at him to get out. And I'm, I'm posted up with my rifle behind one of the squads and I, I can kind of see some shadows behind the tent. So I got, got my rifle leveled about where I think his head is. And, um, just, I'm listening to the other officers kind of do make a plan and, and, and figure out what we're going to do. And all of a sudden I hear a shot ring out and the back window directly between me and his head explodes. And so I swipe off a safe and I, just about ready to squeeze that trigger. And I realized that it was a 40 millimeter launcher that somebody had sent through the back window. And he came out right after that and cuffed up. wasn't a big deal, but the emotional aftermath of that, where it was the first, the first apprehension after a fatal shooting. And I almost killed this guy for, for no reason. Yeah. Other than somebody neglected to call out 40, 40, 40, you know? And, and, that was the 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 intensity of that was was probably more than the intensity of an actual shooting. It was like how close I got to shooting this guy, possibly going to prison for for murder because this guy had no weapons, and it was just it just was a mistake, and that was that was pretty intense. Yeah, I bet, man. You probably um, thought about that for a while right before the yeah. the eyelid shut every night. Yeah, yeah, that sucked, but. Um, my my first shooting was on a SWAT call out back in God that was 2012. Um, this dude had strangled his girlfriend. Uh, we we think he thought she, that she was dead. Um, at first he left he left her laying there unconscious and then uh, went outside and uh, her dad was in a, another shop on the property or something and he he was ramming a pickup into the shop doors trying to get into the shop and then couldn't do it. Um, and then he fled the scene, but, uh, the, the, that was out in the County outside of my town. And, uh, the next day we were briefed on that. We were looking for this guy. So I spent the first few hours of my shift trying to, you know, going to his known associates places, going to parents places. And, um, at this point it was an aggravated domestic. So it wasn't, you know, it wasn't a homicide or anything. And, and, uh, after a few hours of checking, checking known residences, known friends, places and stuff, I went back to my regular job. Um, a couple hours later, I overheard County radio saying that they had him in a, in a farm on a farmstead about 20 miles North of that other town where he had committed the initial act. And, um, he was walking around with a long gun. So, uh, they contacted the, the farm owner who said, I don't know this guy. I don't know why he's at my house, but there's nobody else there. So. So they activated SWAT and we went out there and this was, this was back in the day before we even had armor. So we were rolling around in an old air force runway vehicle oh, as a transport boy. van. It was just, you know, yeah. plywood walls and everything. And, um, no bear cat, no, no bear cat, no nothing. So, so we do our thing and, and to compress the story, we, uh, we were watching him from a tree line and he kept going to a, a pickup on the property and the pickup was at such an angle where we could see the passenger side, but not the driver's door. We could see his legs go to the driver's door and his feet would stay on the ground. He would lean way in like he was putting something in the passenger side of the truck. Mm. And the the assumption was that it was guns because the the homeowner had told us like, you know, there's guns behind the front door. There's long guns behind the bedroom door. There's, you know, there's just guns everywhere in this house, not locked up. So we, we just assume that he's stashing guns in there and getting ready to take off. So we send a contingent of two guys uh, over around uh, another section of the farmstead to get some eyes on what he's doing in the truck. Uh, so they're coming through the tree row and hiding behind a pile of wood to, to see what he's doing. And at that time, we moved up nearer the truck. The rest of the team did. And we still can't see this guy. I still haven't seen anywhere but below his neck or above his knees. It, it's been kind of frustrating because he's been back and forth, and there's he had fired around. I don't think he was shooting at us, but he had fired around through the window of the house toward our direction, but this, we don't think that he was shooting at us. This but. is not his house, right? No, it's just some random guy's house. So the random guy has guns in his house? Just the random guy has guns everywhere in the house, <laughs> you know, yeah. obviously. So. Yeah. But so we move up and um, there's a bush, the truck, a huge bush, and then a, a little outbuilding. So part of our team goes to the corner of the outbuilding to get eyes on the front door of the, the target house. And then 
me and another operator, we um, confirmed with our team lead and we broke off and we went around the bush that was to the driver's side of the truck. And uh, as we're as we're clearing that bush, we hear the two guys that had broken off to get eyes on him. They were saying he's out front with a gun. He's out front. He's pointing the rifle at us. So I'm pieing the bush. And um, all I can see when I, when I clear that the last branch of that bush is he's got a cheek weld on his rifle, looking down the sights at the two guys behind, uh, behind the wood pile. And the problem was that those guys and the rest of the team were at, 180 degrees from this guy so they were all in a crossfire situation mm. and couldn't couldn't take a shot so i was at a 90 degree angle and um i knew like my my friends are about to get shot so like the second i saw him you know flip off safe and it wasn't it wasn't making it wasn't a shoot don't shoot decision you know it was just this guy has to die now so right. i i squeezed uh one round off and i was got it like right in the side of the head. Oh, wow. And I, I remember immediately time just stood still. There was no recoil on the rifle and through my EOTech reticle, it was just crystal clear 4k, you know, everything outside was kind of faded to black. And I remember thinking, Oh shit, I just killed a guy. Yeah. And I'm like, my daughter, my firstborn daughter was three months old at the time. And I'm like, I'm going to prison. She's not going to have a dad. You know, she's, how are we going to pay for college for her? And, you know, just thinking about this and thinking about this. Yeah. And then I was like, I still got work to do. So I kind of like remember physically like shaking it out of my head and um, put a few more rounds down range. And, uh, and that's, that's one of the lessons I learned from it. Um, after the shooting, he was obviously dead. Like it wasn't going to be a problem, but the, the rest of the team moved up, cuffed him and cleared the residence real quick and the whole, the rest of the operation took maybe 30 seconds, but I was, I was out. I, I had not mentally prepared myself for what do you do after a shooting, I fully prepared for up to and including pulling the trigger if needed, but yeah. never once that I thought, what do you do after that? So that's where, you know, that's lessons learned. And what I, what I always try to tell people is yeah, do your shoot, don't shoot, do your if thens, but also go after the, after the fact. And what are you going to do after you pull the trigger? What are you going to do after that? You know, where are you going to go? So, um, after, after the shooting in that one and they were clearing the house, I remember I just sat down behind the, another vehicle that was there. And, uh, one of the other operators came up and he was, you know, he was giving me support and, and took my rifle and had me, gave me some water and all that. So he was great, but, but yeah, that was, that was the first one. And that's intense, dude. Um, that's great that your team member came over because that's what we mm-hmm. should do to to support yeah. you, you know. And um, where you are, do they you keep your sidearm though, right? They might take the rifle, but yeah. they, you keep yeah. the sidearm. Yeah, that that's yeah. that's good. I know there was a sometime in history there was a point where they would take your guns, and then yeah. they found that that was more psychologically damaging to officers because it's like it's a sign of your authority. It's like your badge, and it's also saying like you may have done something wrong, so you can't have this right. anymore. So now, yeah. like, yep. now they do like, we only you, take the one that was used and that's just for evidentiary purposes. And right. I've even heard of guys on the scene in a shooting because they have to take the gun, um, a sergeant giving him their gun and just putting right. it in their holster just, yep. just to make them whole again. Cause you, you already feel like you, exactly like you were saying in your head, you kind of feel like you lost something or something is in like, the, like such a good point about what do you do afterwards? I don't, I can't, mm-hmm. I've never done that. I can't imagine how you feel, but that it's emotional and it's traumatic. So to, you've kind of been made whole again once you have your gun back and you're. Yep. And it know. shows that they still trust you and you didn't do anything wrong. And right. Yeah. It's what, a big deal. What was the distance um, for that shot? Oh, I think I, I think it was 75 feet or so. Oh, I think wow. it was only 25 yards. Not too, not too far. Yeah. Not but, too bad um, for a rifle. The reason I had, I mentioned the the thoughts about my daughter and the, and the going to prison and the college, because um, I felt that I had fired around and had all these thoughts and then got back on the gun, and other guys on scene reported just a constant string of gunfire. They're like you had, there were no pauses. It was one right after the other, and it's just the time dilation, or the time distortions, and the auditory exclusion is unreal. Like we had the bone conducting mic, so I wasn't wearing ear pro, and I. 
had no ringing of the ears, didn't hear a single shot going off, but I do remember brass tumbling out of the ejection port. Yeah. Um, just everything was just kind of slow and, and like that, that intrusive thoughts and, and just without it actually happening in real life, it was, it was strange. Yeah. I've heard that from other people that the, um, and I think, I think Wyatt Earp said that how things seem to slow down. Um, so that's probably, a, I mean, a, that's probably a good si- a sign of a good gunfighter, you know, like where, where time slows down like that. Um, maybe there's a connection there. The guy who, I, the guy whose house it was, is there a law in, in North Dakota for securing your weapons or can you just have them all around your house? You just have them. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> not, <Yeah>. There's got to <laughs> be laws for kids though, right? If you have kids in the house. Um, I guess I'm not sure. That's great. You guys are wide open. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we just got the constitutional carry thing a couple of years ago, and that hasn't been a problem at all. Yeah, that's great. I, I'm not opposed to the one for kids, um, but I do like the idea of, like in mass, I like the idea of having it's your house and you can have weapons and do what you right. want with them that, within the law. In, in mass, they have like a, if it's under your control. So like, it's always like if you go to a house and there's like a loaded handgun on top of the fridge and mom's in the kitchen, but it's a, not her gun, but there's kids in the house. It, it, it makes it harder for like, what, what are you supposed to do yeah. with the law on that? I can see that. You kind of like got to throw it at the court and then they can mass is like a lot of like things are decided at the court. It's not like a, we don't have like a real, traditional like penal code kind of we it's a lot of it's oh, okay. like case law e that's my feel of it that's probably technically inaccurate but that's what it kind of feels like where there's a lot of gray in these gun laws and you know we're yeah we're, we're like baby yeah. california with gun laws <laughs> yeah well um after that after that shooting there was you know there was some time of you know, some emotions and, and just coming to grips with having killed somebody. And, but for the most part, everything was good. Um, and then my daughter started getting older and I had another kid and then it was probably three, four years and the guilt really started setting in because I never, I never got sued from the, uh, the suspects only uh, living relative was his dad. I never got sued. I never heard from dad you know our, our department never got a nasty letter got never anything and and you know the guilt was there that i took somebody's kid from them and they maybe don't know why and they maybe you know I, I was hoping that the dad didn't think that it was just another day or that it wasn't necessary or whatever you know or yeah it wasn't impactful so there was a lot of guilt yeah there was a, there was a lot of guilt and and just wanting to tell that guy's dad, like, you know, this is what happened. And I didn't, you know, I don't want to go out there and kill somebody, but this right. is what happened and why I had to. And, but we never heard anything. So, um, around late 16, early 17, I moved to my hometown uh, to start at that police department. And, uh, I remember dropping my daughter off at preschool and driving back. I just was sitting in my car and just tears rolling down my face. And it was just like, why am I crying? You know, it was just, I have no idea. And finally I texted my wife. I'm like, I think I'm going to go see somebody. Yeah. This is ridiculous. And uh, so I went to our uh, EAP counselors and um, they were great. Um, they, they got me onto EMDR. Have you ever heard of that? Yeah. Yeah. I swear by it. It's witchcraft, but I swear by it. I, I love it. Is and, that, um, that's the, um, eye movement desensitization and reprocessing where they do like the left, right thing. And you kind of just let stuff come to mind. I've, and, I've seen videos on that, like within the last six months. Yeah. 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 I swear by it. I love it. And we, we did a few sessions of those and you know, basically all it is is you sit there with these little paddles in your hand that they vibrate left, right, left, right. And you sit there with your eyes closed and stuff will come up and memories will come up. And then every once in a while, the counselor will stop the paddles and ask what you're thinking about. And interesting. after three or four sessions, it was just all, all dead babies that, you know, that you deal with over the course of your career. And 
after like the fourth session I looked at her, I'm like, I'm thinking, I'm starting to think this is more about the dead babies than the shooting. And she's like, I was waiting for you to realize that. Wow. <laughs> so, you know, they add up over the course of her career and, and I'm a huge proponent of seeing somebody and, and talking them things through and, and getting help if you need it. Cause it, everything adds up. Absolutely, man. And uh, thankfully that is kind of a movement right now too. There's a lot of kind of, um, cops that have done what you've done. I uh, had to shoot somebody in the line of duty and they've kind of made it their mission after retirement to more normalize that, you know, to the, the mental health aspect. And, um, did the department, like after the initial shooting, did they suggest or, or give you any kind of mandatory counseling? No. Um, you know, you have the requisite time off. And then, um, before, before I was cleared for duty, it was just seeing, seeing the department psychologist, the one that you see, you know, prior to getting hired. Right. And then they wanted me to take the, uh, oh, I forget what it's called. The psych test is, you know, it's like 400 some questions. They wanted me to take that just cause and it was kind of interesting that uh, I think that was five or six years into my career and when I initially took that psych test I was naive and optimistic and then uh, after that shooting I took it and I was pessimistic and narcissistic or something it was like you know 180 degree shift in just six years of small town police work and right yeah seeing the things that you see yeah absolutely I had a I want to ask you a question about when you said when you initially fired uh the first round you had that thought that um oh i'm gonna get go to jail i'm gonna be in trouble for murder do you think that was kind of spurred maybe even partially by the climate of the country with shootings where it's like it used to be like yeah you're getting the bad guy you took him out you did the right thing and now it's kind of like cops are a lot of times wrongfully being tried for murder um for shootings. Do you think that was part of the thought process? In my case, I I don't think it was. Um, I think, you know, it's just a lifetime of, you know, killing someone is bad. Don't do that. (laughs) There's that too. Yeah. 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 (laughs) So I think that's where, where mine came from. It was just like, Oh shit. You know, I shouldn't have, you're not supposed to kill somebody. Right. Even though like, obviously just good old fashioned morals. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. No. And I wasn't after the fact, I wasn't ever worried about any, any, legal issues with it. It was a hundred percent clear cut. Um, right. I think one of my rounds went through the action of his gun. So it's not, in, you know, there's no, it's like, obviously he had the gun and I right. shot him and everybody else witness to it. And so I wasn't, I wasn't concerned at all about any prosecution after the fact, but it was just one of those thoughts that pops up and yeah, absolutely. But, um, if we have some time, I don't know. Yeah, we got time, but a little bit of time left, but after a few sessions of that EMDR, you know, I was starting to feel really good mm-hmm. and um, kind of reverted back to once every couple of months sessions with my counselor and and then uh, got into a second shooting. Um, and that one was a fugitive apprehension. And I won't go too into detail with it. It was it was three years ago now, but we're still well within the window of of uh, legal stuff. So, um, but we, the short, short story is we went to this, this residence for, uh, armed robbery suspect from out of state. And, uh, you can't plan for anything because it's always something random. Like we we're studying the outside of this apartment windows, you know, trying to figure out the layout and talking to the, the owner of the apartment, the renter. And, um, they confirmed that dude was in there. They gave us, uh, uh, layout of the apartment and um we our plan was breach and hold call them out um but basically we breached and this apartment it was a kitchen and then a dining room and then some little quarter walls and then a long living room not it wasn't small like we had thought it was actually pretty large and suspect was on the couch in the living room just watching tv and he had made himself a bedroom on the far end of the of the living room by putting a sheet into the drop ceiling with a mattress behind it. So he immediately springs up and jumps on his bed and starts digging through stuff. And then he tears a sheet down. And so he's got in his left hand draped over the right side of his body saying he has a knife. So we kind of, we kind of just hold there and 
we're trying to negotiate with him, trying to talk him into surrendering and coming to us, dropping the sheet, showing us his hands, you know, all the things. And um, he wanted to talk to his kid first. He wanted to call his kid because it was his kid's birthday. And his phone was right by a, a pair of kitchen shears on the table, you know, like the bone cutting scissors. Mm. And I didn't think he had anything in his, in his right hand. I, th- I th- thought he was bluffing and I knew he wanted to get to that, that kitchen shears. So, you know, we we're telling him you can make all the phone calls you want. Once you're in cuffs, we'll, we'll give you your phone. And we'll, we'll do it then. But he, he was insistent and then he would want water and there was a glass of water right by his phone and the kitchen shears. And we, would, we were telling him, don't, don't reach for the water. Don't reach for the water. Um, and this lasted 30, 40 minutes of us talking back and forth with them. And it's oh not, gosh. we have a recording of it and it's not adversarial. It's, you know, initially it was loud, clear commands. And then it was talking back and forth for 30, 40 minutes to see what we could do to resolve it. Sure. All the while the, you know, the, the SWAT team's spooling up and, and we're getting more resources there and stuff. But, um, so eventually we got, um, a 40 millimeter launcher in there, you know, with the sponge rounds and, and, uh, long story short, um, the first 40 millimeter round gets sucked up. Most of the energy is dissipated by the sheet, but it does, it does make him move to a wall and he braces his hand on the wall and we could see his right hand was empty at that point. But then he picked up, uh, like a clothes hamper to protect himself from another 40 millimeter. And they shot him again with the 40 millimeter. And at that point, um, I'll never know for sure, but I think he knew that he was going to die and he wanted to try to take one or more of us with him. And he dove to that kitchen shears and grabbed it and, and just ran across the room directly toward me and my partner, Mm. um, to obviously murder us. And, uh, so we, we started shooting at him. And one thing I remember is we were tracking him across the room and I could, my partner was behind my right shoulder and I could feel my partner's muzzle blast on my knuckles. And I was like, Oh, that's far enough. I'm not going to get my hand blown off. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and then I, another thing was just, it was completely silent. We're in this small enclosed space and we fired eight rounds between us and no ear protection, no nothing. And never, never had ringing in the ears, never heard a shot be fired. Um, and then, uh, he, he, he was killed pretty much instantly about halfway to us. And, um, uh, so after that one, it was, I knew what to expect emotionally, mm. but that was kind of like dreading it now. Like, Oh shit, yeah. this, this was a righteous shoot. There's no, not going to be any legal issues, but now I'm going to, I'm in for the roller coaster again and it's going to be going to be a problem. And, uh, my partner had never been in a shooting before and, you know, that I'm worried about him. And so that, that was the big, big thing after that shooting was just waiting for the shoe to drop with like, you know, the guilt coming in and, and yeah. all of that. So. Damn man. Was, <clears throat> that's a, sort of, yeah, that's pretty crazy. I mean, and that happened not that long after the other one. That one was actually eight years after. Oh, it was. Okay. This one was 2012. This was 2020. Oh, not so too was, long after you did the EDMR or EMDR. EMDR. Yeah. Yeah. I was starting to, you know, it took like five, six years to start feeling really guilty. Then a couple of years to actually get help. And then once I was starting to get really good <laughs> and then we got number two. So, right. But my, uh, my administration is fantastic. Um, they, they came out and they brought pistols with them, gave us new pistols, um, gave us anything we needed, supported us. Um, they're they're fantastic that's great and did the um did that treatment help with this one too um actually it didn't um i think the only thing i can think of is i i was i had a shield up and it was around the shield and when he started running at me i didn't have a real clear view of him i could see i over the shield i could see him with the knife running and then from there it was just point shooting because he was only 10 feet away from us when he when he fell so um, I don't think there was much visual cue to go on for EMDR. Oh, and okay. So, that's, that's part and of then, it. And then my counselor kind of, she, she left the, the EAP program shortly after that. So. Gotcha. But, 
how is your hearing, my man? I mean, I know I've heard that we have a certain biological function for loud noises like that to, <coughs> pr- to protect our hearing. But have you had any, do you get tinnitus or anything after these indoor no, shootings? I, my hearing is just fine. And I don't know any of the biology behind it, but I've, you know, thankful for it, but I don't know why. That's cool. Yeah, I'm, I'm a big, um, I want suppressors on our duty rifles just because I think they're cool. And uh, <laughs> I just want to be like, well, if, you know, if we shoot inside, then we could have some hearing damage. But a lot of guys say that about the shooting, that they're um, shot. It's shockingly unaffected when they're. Yeah. And I think it's only for the shooters. I think everybody else in the room probably had ringing ears. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Absolutely. But I, I, uh, I got in the habit of texting my wife, you know, she, she's on Facebook and she always sees stuff, you know, pop up like, you know, shots are fired and police and all, all this stuff. And so I was getting the habit of texting my wife, like, I'm good. I'm not a shooter. You know, I was there, but I didn't shoot or bad guys down. We're all up and all that. And, um, so she's gotten used to getting those texts. And then, uh, this last one, the, the second shooting, it was, she was on the phone with her friend when I sent her the text, you know, shots fired and he's down. We're up. I'm a shooter and I'll be late. You know, I'll be like coming right. home a little late today. And, you know, so she's on the phone with her friend and she's like, Oh my God, I gotta go. <laughs> you know, it's a, I feel bad for my wife. You know, not a lot of accountants wives get those texts. <laughs> yeah. So she's got a lot to deal with sometimes. Absolutely. Or, yeah. yeah they, they feel kind of powerless to it, you know, cause they're not, mm-hmm. they're not part of that world at all. Right. And I just don't want her sitting at home seeing that, you know, police are, there's shots fired by police or at police. And, or, you know, you fill in the blanks with all the worst thoughts if you don't know. So at the first opportunity, I was like to shoot her a text that I'm good. Yeah. Yeah. My, um, growing up, my, a friend of my mom's had a police scanner and she had family that was law enforcement and she loved the scanner. Some people just love to hear what's going on in town. You know, they want to hear, mm-hmm. but you, it leaves you with a lot of unanswered questions when you have a scanner at home yeah they don't come on later and go well this is what happened it's it's (laughs) like what the hell happened so my mom um was like the opposite she never wanted to be listening she never wanted to hear i think she was over at the woman's house and good friend and family very sweet woman and i i think my mom said there was like um a robbery or something and my dad was working and she was like nope Cause now she's like, all she wants to do is call the police station. Like put Tim on the phone. (laughs) You know what I mean? So she just, she said, I'm just better off not thinking about not hearing that stuff. And I think that's true. I think, I mean, everybody's different. Everybody's designed differently, but, um, I don't, I wouldn't like it either. I wouldn't like to have like just bits and pieces of what my spouse is doing in dangerous situations. I think it would drive me mad, you know? Yeah. You need the whole story. Yeah, absolutely. And that's a big thing for dispatchers too. Like I, I feel for them because they are at our dispatch center. They, they'll be a crazy night, and they don't, unless you do a real good little narrative in the in the CAD, they don't get answers either. Like they're, they're right. their job's real stressful, and they don't get. So I think um, if if something's real bizarre or spicy or whatever, I try to kind of text them or something and be like, you know, yeah. this is, this is what's going on. This is what happened. Cause I don't know. It, it just makes their job all the more kind of stressful, you know, not knowing. Right. Yeah. Getting, getting, At my first agency, the dispatch center was in the police department. So they got, you know, we'd stop in and have coffee and they got all the details about everything. Mm. And this one, you know, it's in its own secure building and you can't get in there. And so they, they never right. hear anything. Yeah. Ours is at a, um, at a state police barracks. So it's like, and it's 35, 40 minutes from me. So oh, it's yeah. like, I never even been there. I've been where I am now for just under three years and I've never met these people in person. <laughs> I keep saying, I'm going to go up there and bring them like coffee and donuts or something, but um, yeah, I really should, but it's the same thing. It's, it's in a, a state barracks. So it's like, you know, you don't just walk in. It's not your police right. department. It's a different, yep. different agency. So yeah, I, I feel you with that. All right, Tom. Um, can you tell us a heartwarming situation from your career? Yes. Um, I love this story. Um, God, when was that? That was probably 2014. The laws kind of changed a little bit as far as uh, taking children from, from 
parents if we felt it necessary. Mm. Um, before we had to get basically had to get permission from child child protective services to take the child, and okay. their standards sometimes were frustratingly high. Yes, and in and it was right around fourteen that changed. Um, and I went to a report. It was just a welfare check at one of our our CD hotels, and knock on the door and these two parents were in there with their three day old infant daughter and they were smoking meth. And, um, so immediate, you know, immediate arrest seize the baby and, and take the baby, give it to CPS and say, here, you know, this, this child is not theirs anymore. Um, and my wife's acquaintances are foster parents and they, they fostered this baby. And a year later, uh, the parents gave up parental rights to the baby and the new family got to adopt her. My wife's acquaintances oh, officially great. adopted her. And two years after that, it was exactly the same circumstances. The same couple had another baby, got that one taken away. And my wife's acquaintances adopted that one too. So the biological siblings now live in a wonderful home and, uh, Every once, every once in a while, I'll uh, see a picture on Facebook of the the, the daughter because she's my middle daughter's age and like the first day of school pictures and stuff, and she's happy and attending school and and the, that's beautiful. That's man. my favorite story. And uh, Hell yeah, a few years ago, story. I was teaching at the academy, and the adopted dad uh, is a police officer in, in North Dakota now too. And I didn't know him, but he came up to me after my class and he's like, "You don't know me, but I'm." her dad and um part of the reason he wanted to be a cop was because he wanted to help out so that's awesome man that is great that's a huge win for the police world you know to get something like that that that's awesome we're we don't in mass we um yeah we have to we're pretty involved with dcf like they are they've taken a lot of heat over the years nationally for not taking kids quick enough um, so I think they're a little bit more proactive now. They have much like more stringent response times, but, um, like if a kid's in immediate danger, we can separate, but we, we would just call them, you know, but you guys actually have the authority to remove them from the situation. Yeah. I don't, I don't remember the exact wording of the law, but it was basically, we make the decision and then CPS kind of had to deal with it. Right. Obviously we can't house the children or anything, but it was, it was, you live at the police department now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Put a car seat in the squad and wait till they grow up. <laughs> right. Dude, that's awesome. That's a beautiful story, man. Thank you for sharing it. Um, all right, we are, we're over an hour here. I got one more question for you if you got a second. Um, advice to new police officers. People really love this question. Uh, what Someone with all the experience you have, what would you tell new candidates? Do it. Don't let anybody talk you out of it. If, uh, if you're in an area that doesn't appreciate police or you don't feel comfortable policing in there's tons of places that would love to have you and love their police departments. Uh, I work in a place where I'm far more likely to get coffee and a donut bought for me than get a finger. Right. It's just, there's, there's places out there where the administration lets you be cops and the public loves you and go find one of those. It's the, it's the best job in the world. Every day, my partner, partner and I look at each other and like, we have the best job ever. That's awesome. It's, just, it's awesome. I like it. No hesitation at all. Just do it. Yeah. Good, good answer, man. Um, cause a lot, a lot of people are conflicted with that statement now. A lot of cops, you know, cause they're at the, it's funny guys will start out and say like, well, you know, don't do it or whatever. And then by the end of them talking their way through it, they're like, it's the best job. You should do it. <laughs> you know, but they, Absolutely. Think, Just think, find, find a good place to work and you'll love it. Yeah. You had that caveat in there and that's, that's wise. Um, I'm kind of hiding out in uh, the Western part of Massachusetts in the Hilltown area. And it's a lot of and mass in general is like, they're super liberal, but there, there is a still a very big um, wanting of law and order. It's not one mm-hmm. of these places that's going to let like Boston have an encampment of protesters. Like they, they kind of fiend being super liberal, but when it comes down to it, they like law and order. They don't, they yeah. don't like high crime. They, so they, um, we, we do get a lot of support and we get a lot of, I feel like a lot of the anti-police stuff is a lot of um, people kind of 
marching in lockstep with their na- with their party's national narrative. But then when you actually deal with them on a call or help them, none of that is there. You know what I mean? And they, and they will. Yeah, it's a very vocal minority. Yes, it's very visual, but yeah, you're right. It's not. Yeah. Most, most people really are appreciative of uh, what police officers are doing. So don't don't be duped by, um, you know, that uncle you have that just watches CNN all day and mm-hmm. uh, has his opinion. So, um, Tom, it was an honor to have you on the show, brother. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing those stories. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, my pleasure, man. Let me um, do the outro. Can you hang on for like a couple minutes? Yeah. All right. Fantastic. The great Tom G. Damn, man. Those were some great stories from North Dakota. Loved it. Uh, guys, thank you for for tuning in and watching the show and listening. The show is on, speaking of watching it, it's on YouTube. I, I was late to the YouTube game, and I really got to push it more. But if you could uh, subscribe to the YouTube channel, that'd be awesome. Also, we're on Instagram. You can find us there and follow us. And let me just get down to the time of the show where I thank the Patreon sponsors, the people that keep the lights on, keep the boat afloat, that keep this show going. Who I'm talking about is the great Andy Biggs, Greg Gadboy, ladies and gentlemen, the great Adam Mehal, Chris June, the great Gary Steiner, the handsome Jake Pinedo, John Shoemaker, ladies and gentlemen, Lauren Stimson, the handsome Lane Campbell, the great Seth Wright, James Rose, Tony Fahey, holding it down overseas. The great Ben Peters, Braden Walker, everybody. Jason Lau, ladies and gentlemen. The great Mike Wynn, Sasha McNabb, Scott Minkler. The great Tammy Walsh, holding it down in dispatch. Sean Clifford. Dennis Carrasquillo, everybody. Iceman from Motor Cop Chronicles. George Tessier. I'll see you at church, brother. Nick Noose. Scott Young, the great Thomas Connell, everybody. Wayne M. Mill, retired ATF and author. Check him out. Dan Carlson from Burley Boards doing amazing things with wood. Go check him out. Doug and Kelly Newman, love you guys. See you at church. The great Do- Joe DeFreeze. Dave Elman, everybody. Elliot Sykes. Richard Tolls, keep on trucking, brother. Stay safe out there. Christian. Jace Crow. Rad Thompson, Kyle Roberts, Zach Haney, the great Nancy Hammond, and Clark Lockup. Guys, I can't thank you enough, but I'll do it one more time. Ha, thank you for the support and your com- continued contributions to the show. I love it. I love to see it. If you have it in your heart and you want to give, go to the link in the show notes, and I will see you guys next week. <laughs>